Today's scripture reading is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. Hey, let's bow our heads one more time and pray, asking God to help us hear his word this morning. I'll give you a moment just to quiet your heart in his presence and pray silently where you are before I voice a prayer for us. Our Father in heaven, as we have been worshiping you through song, we continue to worship you now and praise you that you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the stillness of this moment, we acknowledge that you are holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. In the name of Jesus, we just ask that you would forgive us of our sins and fill us with your Holy Spirit right now. We thank you for the gift of scripture, uh, for the gift of the the Holy Spirit, our teacher. We thank you for the gift of our church family and uh, of a warm place to gather in safety to worship you this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed teach us, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand 
hearts to believe what we hear, and that you would be kindling a light of hope in each of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look out into the world, it is easy at times to feel like there is no justice in the universe. The Bible alerts us to that reality, of course. Think about all those scriptures that cry out, How long, O Lord, will the wicked continue to thrive? How long will the righteous suffer? How long will innocent die? Innocent people die through injustice. And when we turn on the news, it's easy to resonate with those prayers. We see violence all over the world lately in Israel and Palestine and in Ukraine. But we also see all sorts of other evils in the world. It can feel like truth is very small and weak when compared to the lies and deceptions all around us. And then we might look at the places that are supposed to be oases of comfort, family, church. And sometimes they are very comforting, sometimes. But other times we find the same evils and deceptions that are at work in the world, at work also in our families, even in our churches, sin and its devastating consequences are everywhere. And then we look inside of ourselves and that can get discouraging, too. So sometimes you come to church feeling like there is no hope. Now, some of you came to church in a very good mood this morning, feeling very hopeful. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. OK, thank God for you. But others of you know what I'm talking about experientially. And maybe you even came this morning and. I just want to say from the beginning, the Bible validates those thoughts and validates those feelings. So often in Scripture, people who know their God are looking around at the world and saying, it's not supposed to be like this. How long, O Lord? Things don't look like they're going the way that they're supposed to go, given what we know about who you are. And yet, in this text of Scripture, Jesus is telling us that those feelings that there is no hope are wrong. The feelings are misleading. Thank God for feelings. Thank God for emotions. Sometimes they can be a very helpful guide to the truth. But aren't you glad that sometimes your emotions are just wrong? <laughs> They're pointing you towards ideas that turn out to be false. And the big idea of this text is God's kingdom is coming to set everything right. Jesus is talking here. He's continuing. This is a, a section of Luke's gospel in which he's talking to his disciples about viewing their lives, viewing the world, viewing their possessions, viewing money, viewing their fears in the light of God and God's eternity. And now he's talking about the coming kingdom of God. At first, when they first heard these words, the disciples probably really couldn't imagine what Jesus was talking about. They were sort of imagining most likely that Jesus was about to establish a political kingdom in Jerusalem. But after his death and resurrection and his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit, they began to understand more clearly. And by the time Luke wrote his gospel, those first readers of Luke's gospel would have rightly understood that Jesus is talking about his own second coming. And what he's saying about his second coming is he's coming back to finish what he started, 
When he comes, God's kingdom is going to make everything new. Jesus is going to judge and overcome evil and defeat all the powers of darkness. God's truth and justice and mercy and love are coming to heal the world. So be ready. Everybody say be ready. In fact, Jesus is kind of helping us shift the question in our minds. The question is not whether truth and justice will triumph in God's world. The question is, when truth and justice triumph in God's world, will you be ready? Will I be ready? So in the text, Jesus gives us three parables and a series of images about being ready. From the beginning, I just want to focus on one image that stood out to me this week that maybe can stay in your mind as we dig into some of the details of this passage. But it's from verse 35. Stay dressed for action, Jesus says, and keep your lamps burning. As we'll say more about in a moment, he's telling us a parable here. And the idea is that some servants are waiting for their master to return home. And he's coming back late at night and they need to stay ready to open the gate and let him in to welcome their master. Who wants to be on the welcoming committee when Jesus comes back? I remember years ago in a class, uh, everybody was debating the book of Revelation and uh, defending their favorite positions on what all the stuff meant about the millennium and the tribulation, all this. And there was one guy in the class that said, you know, really, my perspective is that I'd rather be on the welcoming committee than the planning committee when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. I thought that was a good perspective. We need to be ready to welcome him when he comes back. And the image here is keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. I was just reflecting on that image. These metaphors in the Bible are meant to provoke us, to inspire us, to imagine. Keep your lamp burning. Uh, there's a picture I want to put on your screen. I'll, if we have time, say more about this picture at the end of the sermon today. But we can put it up now. I like this image of keeping your lamp burning. Imagine it's dark outside. But you have light, a little light, a little lamp light in a big dark world. And that light represents your confidence that the master is coming soon. You are waiting expectantly. You are staying alert. Your spirit of expectation provides some illumination on this dark night. As you gather with other expectant servants, the combined output of all your little lamps actually starts making enough light that other people can see and start to notice. Your community of hope is lighting up the night for everybody. Can you picture that? The church is a community of hope. The church is a waiting community. The church is an expectant community. The church is a community whose life is founded upon the promises of Jesus Christ. And each of us has a lamp. And when we bring them together, as is happening in this serograph, some of you all already got out your phones and looked up this serograph. I'm going to tell you about it at the end of the sermon, okay? I'll tell, I'll tell you the story of what this is. As, but as I tell you about this, <laughs> I see you, Pastor. <laughs> Didn't mean to call you out like that, except for I kind of did, but that's okay. Uh, th- this picture, Festival of Lights, 
is an image of a community together. Individually, our lamps may feel small. Okay, let's be honest. Confessional moment. Do you feel like your lamp is flickering sometimes? But when we come together as a community of hope, all those small lights start to add up. Before we keep reading any further, I just want you to have this picture in your mind. You can take it down now. We'll save it for the end. We just whet your appetites. But I want you to have that picture in your mind. And my prayer for us, church, as we enter into the cold dark of winter in the year of our Lord, 2023, is that that picture will be in our mind and that the Spirit of God will make us a community of hope that generates enough light in our community to give hope to our city. That sound like a good prayer, church? Make us a community of hope, God. Make us faithful servants who are on high alert. Let, let me say a few big picture observations, observations about this passage before we look at a few of the details. Here's a few big picture adver- observations. To understand the Christian life, You have to understand that we are living between the two advents of Jesus. So our our key word today and for the next month is Advent. Everybody say Advent. Next Sunday, a week from today, is the first Sunday of the Advent season. But this, our text that we were already scheduled to study from the Gospel of Luke, is perfect preparation for that Advent season. The word Advent just means arrival. And Jesus arrived once already. He came in humility. He came in weakness. He claimed clothed as a baby in a manger and then unclothed on the cross to die for our sins, to rise from the grave, ascend to heaven and sit down on a throne and pour out the Holy Spirit. That's the first advent of Jesus. But he will come again a second time to judge evil, raise the dead, gather his people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation and invite them to share in his joy in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the second advent. Of Jesus. Everybody say Advent. And the Christian life is a life of hope lived between these two Advents. And we live in the tension of the reality that Jesus has already come once and inaugurated his kingdom, but we're still waiting for him to come again. So that these times are a time of both sorrow and joy. They're a time of struggle, but also a time of victory. They're time marked by death, but also by life. They're time marked by sin, but also by forgiveness and righteousness. It's a time of spiritual warfare. As the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated, the devil has already been overthrown, and yet he's still roaming around like a lion, causing a lot of pain and misery. In the in-between time, We are called to be a people who wait for the Lord. That's going to be one of our key phrases over the next four weeks in Advent. So everybody say, wait for the Lord. We're called to be people of hope. Now, I told you Jesus gives you three parables in this passage. Let's talk about them all real quick. All three parables are about learning to live between these two Advents of Jesus as a community of hope waiting for the Lord. The first parable in verses 35 through 38 is the one I've already alluded to. It's about servants whose master has gone to a party and he's coming back late, later than they expected. There's no cell phones to text an update. And the door is locked. And so they're all sitting out there. And the text indicates he may be really late. It may be the second or third watch of the night, which means they may have been expecting him, oh, 10 p.m., but they may be sitting there till 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. waiting. 
Now, let's be honest. If that's your job, you're going to get sleepy, right? You're going to get tired. You may think, oh, if I just nod off for a second, he's, he'll wake me up when he gets back. But then you fall asleep and you're out cold. You know how it is. And the point of the parable here is don't be that kind of servant. Stay awake. Stay alert. Say ready for action. The picture there is girding your loins. We don't use that phrase anymore, but they wore these like flowing skirt things. And if you're a servant and you're asleep and your loins are not girded and your master gets up and you start trying to run, you're going to trip and fall. So stay dressed for action. Here's the thing you need to understand. Waiting for the Lord is not passive. It's active. Living by hope is not passive. It's active. It's about being on alert, being alert, being on the ready all the time. And in that first parable, the blessing, the blessing that Jesus speaks is for all those who keep their lamps burning, the servants who are ready to welcome their master when he returns. The second parable, verses 39 through 40, is a little bit of a shift. It's a little bit of a strange parable. A homeowner is asleep and he doesn't have a good security system. And a thief comes and he wasn't ready. So the thief breaks in in the middle of the night and he's not ready. And the thief can take whatever he wants and cause whatever mischief he wants and leave. Now, that may be a strange parable. Jesus told a lot of these strange parables and Luke's gospel includes more of them than other gospels in which Jesus is er, is comparing himself and God to all sorts of uh, disreputable characters. But the point here is this. First of all. That God may come back when you're least expecting it. He will come back. As a matter of fact, if if what we're saying right now about the second coming of Jesus feels unreal to you, you should know that in this passage, Jesus literally says you're not going to feel like it's going to happen. It's going to happen when you least expect it. You're not going to feel like it's about to happen. That's part of the point here. But the other part of the point is. Alerting us to the fact that the second coming of Jesus is a day of grace and hope and healing, but it's also a day of judgment. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been calling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The idea is this. Either I can hold on to my sin and reject Jesus, or I can let go of my sin in order to hold fast to Jesus. And because he's a gracious and merciful Lord who came to die on the cross for our sins, if I hold fast to Jesus, then when I come, that's a day of grace and of being received into his kingdom. But if I think, you know what, I just want to keep going my own way. I want to hold on to my sin. I want to persist in doing evil. All these parables are designed to destroy the illusion that that's a safe thing to do. The second coming of Jesus could be terrifying if you're holding fast to evil. And then Peter asks a question. Peter is confused. You and I would be confused if we were there also. But Peter asks a question about, are you talking to us or to all? It's not quite clear what Peter means, but it seems to be the case that he's saying, are you talking to like us, the 12 apostles? Is this a message for everybody? And so Jesus intensifies the message here. But the implication is the general message to be ready for the second coming of Jesus applies to all people. But there's an intensified responsibility for those who have a leadership role within the Christian community, within the community of God. So in this final parable, 
verses 42 through 48, Jesus talks about faithful and unfaithful managers. You might underline that word managers. You could write the word stewards above it. The managers here are stewards. They are servants, but their job is to take care of all the other servants, to make sure that the rest of the household is well cared for, to feed the other servants, to clothe the other servants, and so on. And the point of this parable is that those people who have a leadership role within the Christian community have heightened expectation. They should have heightened expectation of reward for faithfulness, but also of accountability and judgment if they rebel against God. All the parables, all three of them have the same basic point. Jesus is coming back. So be ready. He's coming back at a moment that you might not expect. So stay ready. Obey Jesus. Trust Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Love the people around you. Fulfill your God-given responsibilities in a way that glorifies God and helps your neighbors and blesses them. And as we've already seen, these three parables come with serious words of warning and with deep, profound Statements of grace that should awaken hope for us. I want to look at a little with a little more detail at the words of warning and the words of grace and hope. Let's start with the warning one so we can end with hope. First, here's the first image of judgment in this text. There's a metaphor of your house being broken into that we've already seen. Verse thirty nine. But know this. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. What is the point of the metaphor? We've already started to talk about it here. But now I want you to think about it in a little more detail. We're all building a life. You can think of your life here as like a house. You're making a house for yourself. You're trying to make a house that feels very safe and secure. And you might be... Building a house that's all about you. You might be choosing to live in sin uh, in a, a way that you feel comfortable and secure. In fact, this whole long section of Luke chapter 12 started with a parable that Jesus told about a fool who was selfish and did not care about God or about the people around him, but thought he could store up enough money to be safe and secure. And what Jesus is saying is nobody is safe in sin. Nobody is safe in sin. Nobody is secure in sin. I want you to hear these words of Jesus. He's not a harsh master. He doesn't want to judge anybody. I think you should picture him saying this with profound compassion in his eyes. But he's saying to you personally, if you're living in sin and rebellion thinking maybe I'll get my stuff together later. Maybe I'll get right with God later. Don't be a fool. You do not know how much time you have. Get right with God now. That's the picture. That's a metaphor that is sobering, isn't it? The other one's even more so. Jesus gives a metaphor about a servant getting a beating. Look at verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
Again, the image is one that's warning us of coming judgment when truth and righteousness come to set the world right and to judge evil. You don't want to be holding on to evil. You don't want to be living that way. And the statement here indicates that there is further accountability for those who know better, which means church people who are all sitting here reading the word of God. We really ought to listen, right? We really ought to listen to what he's saying. We know better. Those words are even less shocking than what Jesus says in verses 45 through 46. Jesus says some disturbing stuff, doesn't he? He says some shocking stuff. It's trying to get our attention. To awaken us from our complacent spiritual slumbers. Verse 45, he said this, but if that servant this is, this is a manager. This is a steward. If that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's a very hard word to hear, isn't it, church? As I meditated on this passage this week and prayed, when I read this verse, to be honest, my mind kept going to all sorts of scandals that have hit the headlines over the last 10 or so years of religious leaders exploiting their people. I thought of the Church 2 movement. And all the stories that have come to the surface of spiritual leaders abusing their position of spiritual authority to gain influence in people's lives and then exploiting those people sexually or financially or in other ways. I think of all the worst stories in history of people who speak in the name of God, but they use that name to hurt, abuse and exploit others and gratify themselves. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When I hear those stories, I get angry. Don't you get angry? It's terrible to exploit and hurt other human beings, and it's really terrible to do it in the name of the Lord. And if you feel angry about that, if you feel disillusioned by it, either because you've heard about it in the news or because it's happened to you in your life or to someone you know, as is probably the case for most of us here, Someone we know, if not ourselves. Then just know that that anger at the injustice inside of you is just a little flavor of the fact that God is very displeased with this. God loves his sheep. The good shepherd loves his sheep. The father loves his children. The king loves the citizens of his kingdom. And when people come in his name and abuse his name, dishonor, profane his name. By hurting God's children, God is very angry at that. And he's threatening judgment towards those people. Everyone who oppresses his children in his name will face very serious judgment when Jesus, the truth, comes and shines the light of righteousness into the world. And all his little ones who have been hurt and healed, he himself will comfort and vindicate. The wolves in sheep's clothing will face Severe judgment. These are very sobering words from our Lord. 
But there are also some incredibly beautiful words of grace in this passage. Incredible promises that are meant to awaken our hope. Promises of reward. When you read promises in the Bible of God rewarding you for your faithful service, don't you feel like it's a little unreasonable sometimes? I mean, really, if you look at yourself, if you look at all the church and all of our work and all the grace that we've needed every day, it seems like, okay, not sending us to hell. I can get that, that much grace. But rewarding us for our service, his promises are extravagant. And it's all grace all the way down. Listen to what he says, uh, for example, in verse 37. This is for those servants who kept their lamps burning. And so when the master came... Late at night, they were ready, their loins were girded, they went and opened the gate and welcomed him. Come in, master, we're ready for you. And they're expecting now to uh, get all the hot food out, to wash his feet, to take care of him. But Jesus flips those expectations. And in verse 37, he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What an image. I want to ask you to try to picture that. One day Jesus comes back and after all your stumbling attempts at faithful discipleship, he comes in glory and he receives you into his kingdom And you're ready to fall down at his feet and worship him. And he says, you sit down and relax. I prepared a feast for you. Can you picture it? Doesn't it make you a little uncomfortable? It made Peter uncomfortable when Jesus enacted this in John chapter 13 and washed his feet. No, Lord, you shouldn't wash my feet. I should be the one serving you. But Jesus told him, basically, sit there. Let me do this. I need to teach you something, Peter. This is the picture of God, the master, delighting to become our servants. What does the image mean? It means to the faithful, struggling, discouraged disciple who holds fast to Christ that for eternity, almighty King Jesus will make it his business to make you perfectly joyful. That's what it means. The master's going to make sure you're comfortable. Some of you know people like this. Mothers, grandmothers, Uh, when I come to my house, my home where my mother lives, sometimes I try to be helpful, although I've been very conditioned not to be very helpful when I'm in that space. Because every time I get up to help, my mom is like, sit down, let me feed you, let me bring you snacks, won't you uh, just relax, just do this. And I get babied all the time. Somebody want to admit that you do that, too? Uh, nobody wants to admit it right now. We know, we know that there was not an equal division of labor in your house for Thanksgiving. Okay, I'm not calling out what it is, but we know how this works. Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it my business to make sure you are comfortable and happy and your soul is satisfied with joy forever and ever. And then to the stewards, he gives these promises. Look at verse 42 through 44. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
Jesus promises extra special blessings to the servant leaders within his community who are faithfully feeding God's sheep. Now, as I thought about this this week, I thought about so many of you. This isn't just about pastors, guys. I thought about so many of you who teach a Sunday school class or lead a community group or show up week after week at a Bible study and you've got a consistent place to meet that suddenly disappears in December when it gets really cold. So now you're meeting outside trying to tell a really short Bible story to some kids and give them hot chocolate and go home and you show up week after week. I was thinking about all those who help in children's church, teaching God's word to the little kids in our congregation, thinking about all of you guys who um, in our neighborhood ministries team or our schools ministry team or celebrate recovery ministry or all the different areas of the life of our church are serving behind the scenes in ways that usually nobody sees but Jesus. And you're consistent and you're faithful. Can we be honest, church? Do you ever get tired doing that? OK, that was, I was expecting more vocal honesty than that. OK, I'll, I get tired, guys. Sometimes we get weary with the work. At times, we minister for a long time to people and we start to wonder, is it having any effect? Is our labor in vain? Are they hearing what I'm saying? Sometimes you serve and minister and bless people for a long time and they turn around and are hurtful to you because hurt people hurt people. And you can get discouraged. And what Jesus is saying, everyone who trusted me to the end I'm going to clothe myself like a servant to make them joyful forever. But especially those of you who have kept yourself busy taking care of my church because I loved my church. And whatever you did for the least of my people, you did it for me. So he says, you're going to be set over all his possessions. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that metaphor is pointing towards in the new creation, but it's saying there's going to be even more reward, which is to say, if, if you feel like all the little faithful service, teaching the Bible, sharing the gospel, having one more conversation, passing out the snacks, serving in little physical ways, giving somebody a ride to the doctor, listening to somebody who's hurting, praying for somebody, if you feel like it's small and insignificant, The master is saying it's not small. It's not insignificant. And when I come back, you will find rewards that are extravagant beyond your wildest imagination. Church. When we look around at the world. And then look at our cities and look at our church, look at our families, look inside our own hearts. It can feel like all these words Jesus is saying are not real. But they are real. They are true. It's really going to happen. We should not be surprised, as I said earlier, to discover that sometimes these words don't feel real to us. Because Jesus said you're going to be least expecting it. But let's say it again. Our feelings are not always reliable. Amen, church? But the word of Jesus is always 100% reliable. So we should live based on the words of Jesus, not our feelings, when they contradict. The key phrase that I want you to take away today, in addition to 
the image of the lamps is the phrase from verse 36, waiting for their master, waiting for their master. What is the church doing? What are we doing all day, every day? What is our calling? Our calling is simply waiting for our master. We're waiting for Jesus. We want to be on the welcoming committee. We want to welcome him when he comes home. So we learn to wait on the Lord. And this waiting is a life of active obedience with our eyes on the horizon. Metaphorically speaking. But have you ever noticed that if you go into a Christian graveyard, all the graves are facing east? It's because Christians many centuries ago made the connection between all those scriptures about Jesus coming back and the son of righteous rising to bring hope. And so they point the graveyards facing east because they knew as soon as the son of righteousness comes over the horizon, everybody in this graveyard is going to stand up and start singing his praises. It's the hope of resurrection. The Christian life is a life of hope, active obedience with our eyes on the horizon and we need to learn how to live by hope, even and especially when it feels like there's a really long delay between promise and fulfillment. And can we be honest that for ourselves, 2000 years feels like kind of a long time. It's been about 2000 years since Jesus said this. There were already some hints in this parable that it might be a long time, like verse 38. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. If, if he doesn't come back from the party till 6 a.m. and there's still three servants awake, blessed are they. When I thought about that verse this week, I remembered a babysitter. It might have been one of you, but I don't remember. Maybe eight years ago, somebody who babysat for my family told me about a nightmare. They didn't say call it a nightmare. They called it a dream. A dream that they had that uh, they were up trying to stay awake, waiting for me to come back from date night with Candace. And we just stayed gone for like hours and days. And they were trying to take care of all of our children. Stress. It can be stressful waiting for the master to come, right? If you didn't get an ETA. That's the point of that. By the way, I'm sorry to whatever babysitter that was. <laughs> that we caused you that stress. Um, but it can be stressful to wait for the master to come back if you don't have an ETA. And Jesus didn't give us an ETA. He just said, wait. And if it takes a long time, keep waiting. Peter got this message and he was still thinking about it when he was an old man. We know because he wrote about it in Second Peter. If you've got your Bible, I'm almost done. But I want you to look at Second Peter, chapter three. The same Peter who spoke up in Luke 12, verse 41, was still thinking about these words of Jesus decades later as he wrote to the church. About the second coming of Jesus, I'd encourage you to. Spend some time reading that whole chapter this week, Second Peter chapter three. But I'm going to pick up in verse eight. Listen to what the apostle says. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and at a thousand years as one day. One day is as a thousand years. That means though I'm flying through today, barely noticing what's happening around me. God is eternally fully present in every moment of today. With me in every moment of today. That's a nice thought, isn't it? But then he says a thousand years is like one day. Now, on that time scale, it's only be, been two years since Jesus rose from the dead. What if he waits a whole week? That's like 5,000 days or 5,000 years. You dragging with me on this? It could be a long time or it could be next year or it could be tonight. Or what if he came back while I was preaching right now? That would be really epic. Chauncey would never learn about that painting, but 
Maybe in heaven. <clears throat> he continues, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. This is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus, Luke twelve thirty nine. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter is thinking about these words of Jesus at the end of his life. And he says, be holy, hate sin, wait for the Lord, hasten the word, uh, the coming of the Lord by your prayer and your obedience. Think about the faithfulness of Jesus. Have has any of his promises ever failed in your life, church? Let me let me get somebody to testify when you've been struggling and cried out to the Lord. Has he been faithful to hear and answer your prayers? Think about his track record of faithfulness. He's never failed you. Think about the cross. If you want to think about faithfulness, that's how far he's willing to go out of love for you. Think about the resurrection. He's the only guy in history that said, I'm going to die and rise from the dead and then did it. His promises never fail. And so this promise to come back again will not fail. Okay, let's put the picture back on the screen. Before I sit down, let me tell you about this. This picture is originally painted. This is a this is a serigraph. But by John August Swanson, one of his his mom, I believe it was, was from Sweden. His dad was from Mexico and he, he passed away in 2021. But he was one of the great contemporary Christian visual artists and all of his work combined a Mexican-American visual aesthetic with deep roots in the medieval Christian tradition. This painting called the Festival of Lights, he said, was inspired by a couple of things. He loved pictures of light shining in the dark because the world is dark and we need hope. He loved pictures of pinpricks of starlight reminding us that the little flickering hopes that we carry is rooted in the reality that a good creator reigns over his creation and will set everything right. And he said that this picture in particular was evoked by two experiences that he'd had. When he was a kid, he was a part of liturgical processions, meaning church churches. Some of you have been in Christmas services or things like that where people walk carrying candles. Uh, and he was a part of those as a kid. He was given those candles or those lamps to carry as a group of people were walking to church for these moments to worship Jesus. He was thinking about those experiences, but he was also thinking about during the 80s and 90s when he participated in peace vigils as war was tearing apart Central America and thousands of people were dying left and right because of all sorts of power hungry people fighting and all that injustice. And those two images connected in his mind, as they ought to in ours, that people who worship Jesus carry a light of hope, which is a beacon of hope for peace in a world ravaged by sin and violence. He said in this picture, he wanted it to represent an, uh, a world that is torn by that kind of darkness and sin. All the children coming out of their little villages and out of their cities to walk down the road and carry their candles as signs of hope. And peace, by the way, in the Christian tradition, hope is always or is frequently um, depicted visually as children, because children are always thinking about the future. They're always looking to what is yet to come. And as I think about this text from Jesus this week and think about this painting, Festival of Lights from John August Swanson, 
My prayer for us 